You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Hello and welcome to Security Unlocked, a podcast from Microsoft where we unlock insights from the latest in news and research from across Microsoft Security's engineering and operations teams. I'm Nick Fillingham. And I'm Natalia Gadilla. In each episode, we'll discuss the latest stories from Microsoft Security, deep dive into the newest threat intel, research, and data science. And profile some of the fascinating people working on artificial intelligence in Microsoft Security. And now, let's unlock the pod. Hello, the internet. Hello, listeners. Welcome to the 50th episode of Security Unlocked. My name is Nick Fillingham. I'm joined, as always, by Natalia Gadilla. Natalia, welcome to you. Congratulations on 50 episodes. We did it. Achievement Unlocked. I don't think it's fully sunk in that we are at episode 50, but I don't think it's sunk in that we've also done 49 other episodes. I think it's a big achievement. And, you know, to all the listeners that are listening and have been subscribing and have been with us from wherever you joined the Security Unlocked journey, thanks for sticking with us. And we we hope you're enjoying the podcast and we'll stick with us for the next 50. Natalia, you were working on some 50th anniversary gold stamped chocolate coins. Can you give us an update on that? Are they, you had a portable handheld sort of crucible smelting device? As for smelting, coins going great. My neighbors love it. I live in an LA apartment building. So at a minimum, they're enjoying the strong smell of chocolate. Don't think everybody else, i.e. my landlords, love the, you know, burning bit, but... (laughs) You just have to explain to them that it's in celebration of 50 episodes of your podcast. And they'll be like, oh, why didn't you say so? Keep going. Speaking of commemorative gold coins, I'm not sure that that's a bit of a stretch. We'll see. Our guest today is the OG of security research, Chris Weisopel, aka Weldpond, one of the founding members of The Loft, who really sort of helped define this space of cybersecurity and security research and vulnerability discovery and mitigation back in the 90s. Chris is joining us today as part of a conversation that Natalia and I had with him for The Security Show, which is a YouTube video show that Natalia and I worked on, where we brought luminaries on to talk about security topics. But we thought that conversation was so great, we wanted to bring it over to the Security Unlocked audience. And we thought Chris would be a very fitting guest as part of episode 50. Natalia, you know, The Security Show was your brainchild. Tell us what can folks expect in this conversation with Chris? It's an incredible conversation focused primarily on application security. He draws from, obviously, his longtime experience in the security industry and all of the vacillations that the industry has experienced over the years. But we ask questions like, what tools and frameworks do you use to build secure software? And how do you connect your security and dev teams that you have a modern, secure software development lifecycle? And he just gives such tactical guidance for security teams who are really looking to level up their software development or level up the security of their software. We're going to bring you many more of these where we get to speak to fantastic security luminaries and thought leaders who don't work for Microsoft and are out there in the non-Microsoft world doing great things. So be on the lookout for that in future episodes of Security Unlocked. But again, 
Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for subscribing. Even if you just listened to one episode, even if it's your first episode, thanks for coming on this Security Unlocked journey with us. Uh, we hope you enjoy episode 50. We hope you stick around for more. And with that, on with the pod. On with the pod. Today, we are joined by Chris Wysopel, who is the co-founder and CTO at Vericode. Well, Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks for your time. Could we start with a quick intro for folks that maybe have heard your name but can't quite place the face? Yeah, so my name is Chris Weissopel. I'm the co-founder and chief technology officer at Vericode. Um, started the company 15 years ago. We focus on application security. Before that, I was a security consultant doing pen testing and code reviews, actually did some of that work for uh, Microsoft as a, as a consultant, helping secure some of the, the flagship applications. And before I was a consultant, I was a vulnerability researcher. Um, vulnerability research actually started out of the hacker scene and the computer underground. And when I started doing it, it was something that wasn't quite welcomed by vendors and government because... No one likes their pants pulled down. And so we kind of had to hide the fact that we were doing this from the people that were employing us in our day jobs. I was a programmer. Any of these like mid to late 90s tech movies, hackers, sneakers, lawnmower man, you were there. Did any of them get it right or were they all just silly Hollywood hyperbole? And have you seen anything recently? Do they hold up? Well, I, you know, I think sneakers kind of got it right. At back when I was with my hacker crew at the loft back in the late 90s, we were saying, like, maybe this could be a job for us, like doing vulnerability research and doing pen testing. And, and we knew about sneakers and we said, we want to be like the sneakers guys, right? We want a van, we want to roll up, we want someone who's doing like radio surveillance and someone else who's sneaking in. And, you know, we actually saw that as, as, you could actually do that as a job. What are the biggest threats to software today, biggest vulnerabilities, and are organizations ready for that? When developers use open source libraries and they include them in their products, and then they don't really think about the vulnerabilities that are coming through that open source, it becomes a problem for the entire ecosystem. We saw that with Heartbleed everyone scrambling around trying to patch their usage of the SSL library. If you're using open source, you really have to think about it differently. You have to think about it as you're managing, you know, something a supplier is delivering to you. But you have to think about what's the bill of materials of my software? What, what did the supplier drop off to me? And then I have to make, make, make sure that I'm keeping track of vulnerabilities as they come, come forward in the future. And, and update that. So it, it's, it's kind of like a car manufacturer set, you know, keeping track of all the parts they use in case there's a defect in, say, airbags, and you need to do a recall and replace them. And are there specific tools or processes to actually to do that, to monitor the open source libraries, the open source code that you're using to treat it more like a supply chain and a bill of, bill of materials? If a a business, an organization is is sort of adopting open source for the first time. How do they do it safely? Yeah, so there's definitely um, products out there that do it. You know, OWASP has a free tool called Dependency Checker that I know works for Java and some other languages. There are commercial tools. Barracode has one. 
It's called software composition analysis. And the idea is you can, you can run this on your software, either in source form or binary form, and it gives you a list of all the open source you're using, and it detects the version numbers, and then that connects to a vulnerability database, which can then tell you, hey, this version has a vulnerability in it. Some of the, some of the newer capabilities that these tools have is to actually tell you if you're using the part of that open source library that's going to make your application vulnerable. So not every open source library with a vulnerability in it is actually making your app is making your application vulnerable because you might not be using that part. And so being able to know if you're using the, the part that's exploitable is a, is, is a big help in managing this because we, we, we find some of our customers, one application is using hundreds of applications, hundreds of libraries. And you just know when you're using hundreds of libraries, there's definitely vulnerabilities in there. It becomes difficult to manage. So you want to you wanna have that information. It, it helps lower the amount of work you're doing to maintain security. So stepping back for a bit, what is modern secure software development? What does it entail? What does it look like? It's interesting because modern secure software development has changed because development practices have changed. Modern software development is much more iterative now and much more agile where things aren't planned out in advance. And you have people writing software where they are going from new feature idea to delivering that software in maybe a week or two or even in days. And so modern software security has had to adapt to that. Um, what you need to do is you need to do things in small chunks in an iterative way so that, say, you're threat modeling just that one new feature at a time, sort of on demand, or you're doing manual penetration testing on just one feature at a time, and your automation has to run at the speed of your, of your development pipeline. So that if your development pipeline, you know, building and running your automated tests takes a few minutes, your security testing has to fit into that few minutes too. So this is where we're seeing automated tests get faster and faster, but also operate on, on smaller and smaller chunks and shifted further and further left. So you're, not, you're, you're working on the little pieces of the application and it makes it much quicker to get to discovering that vulnerability. So let, let's talk about shifting left. What does shifting left mean and, and how do you do it? Shifting left means that you're really becoming part of the development process and not even just becoming part of the process. Before we deploy the software, let's run all our security all at once right before we deploy it. The problem with both of those is you're about ready to deploy your software when you get this big list of things to fix. So obviously that's gonna slow things down. So shifting left is trying to discover the vulnerabilities as close to when those, those vulnerabilities are created as possible. So you would wanna be doing automated testing you know, on a feature branch as a developer or some developers are working on a feature before it's in that mainline branch when they're deciding, hey, are we, are we done here? Are we done with this feature? Are we going to commit this code? Shifting left would be like, let's do our security testing there and part of the pipeline when I'm doing my unit testing. You could even shift further left and scan code in the IDE. 
right as the developer is, is scanning. There are some limitations that you don't have the full context of the application because you might just be looking at you know, one method of code, one class of code. But if you can find a certain percentage of vulnerabilities there, that's, that's great. The other thing is when we are talking about earlier third-party code, when you bring an open source library into your application, you want to understand if that version has vulnerabilities right then when you first start using it or when you're building in the pipeline. You don't want to find this after the fact. So lots of different techniques of, of testing software can be shifted left. And even, even penetration testing can be shifted left. So I think you just touched on that, some of the how elements. So how do you actually incorporate security into the process? What tools do you use if, you're if a company is trying to transition to this process? What should they be thinking about as like foundational elements? Yeah, so foundational elements for tools would be things like static analysis, which it's basically grew out of code review, right? So you can actually inspect all the code just like you would inspect a code by doing a code review, except you're doing it extremely fast and you can look for a huge amount of different coding patterns of control flow and data flow and usage of risky functions that will highlight something that's exploitable. We talked a little bit about software composition analysis, which tells you what open source you're using, but there's a real benefit to doing runtime testing which actually models how the code is, is, is running in a particular environment. So tools like dynamic application security testing, which really focus on exercising uh, a web interface or an API a, a interface, a RESTful API. There's interactive application security testing, which inspects code as it's running. It's being driven by unit tests or other kind of testing. And, and those types of tests can be built into the, the pipeline also and tell you things that you might not be able to see because they can see how the code is interacting with its environment. So other microservices, other APIs that are outside of your system, the actual container stack it might be running in, that those types of testing can, can see more of uh, how the environment is affecting the security of the program. So how should companies assign ownership of secure code across the software development lifecycle? This is one that I think makes a huge difference, and it's assigning the ownership of the security of the code to the people who are writing the code. When you have a finding, whether that was found by an external pen tester, some static analysis tool, it should get routed to the people who own that piece of code. Ideally, they're the ones doing the testing, right? They're running the testing. And so it's close to the time when that code was produced. You know, I see all the time where, you know, you wait till the end of a many month project and you find all these vulnerabilities and then you go to fix them and the people who wrote the code aren't even on the team anymore. Or I've seen places where they don't want to take up the time for the developers that are their prize developers who wrote the code. And they I've seen even seen people outsource the fixing. So they outsource the fixing. And the problem I see with that is it takes longer to fix. It might be cheaper, actually. But the real downfall of that kind of model is the people who created the vulnerabilities in the first place 
don't get to learn from that feedback loop. How can somebody who's in maybe the security organization work with that group to raise the level of priority and get that as uh, get that part of their remit? The way I've seen it work well, and, and this is something we actually do at Faircode, because of course we're a software company, is to have a small core, you know, application security team that um, has, a, has a lot of expertise, maybe a, a ratio of one to 100 developers um, is something that I've seen work. And, and that team helps each individual Scrum team get up to speed and ideally educates the team with training and uh, even goes above and beyond that and create a security champion within that team to try to scale out uh, the, the expertise. And they can help out you know, when there's vulnerabilities found, they can, they can, you know, pair up with a developer that's fixing it. Do you have guidance for someone that's at the very beginning of that journey? I definitely recommend not using C and C++ if you can help it. But, but let's just say you've picked, you know, you've picked Node.js or you've picked Python or, or whatever you, you've, you've picked, you know, educate yourself if, if there are classes and frameworks out there that will help you do things like input validation um, and output encoding and session management and um, author, author is secure authorization, secure you know, two-factor. And a lot of these might be libraries you're going to be selecting. The other thing that's really important is to build in security tooling in, right into your pipeline as you're building your code. So you're not sort of inadvertently building up all this security debt, technical debt, security debt is, is a business decision and, and it can help you get to market faster. But it, it should be something that you, you, you sort of make a conscious decision about, which means get your security tooling implemented in your SDLC early and fix things early. You'll find that they're easy to fix as it becomes part of your process. It really needs to just be part of your normal development process, and then you, you choose to say, well, what's the policy of the risk I'm willing to tolerate in production? What's the risk I'm willing to tolerate shipping to my customers? Because you're not going to fix every low severity flaw. For when something does happen, how can companies prepare themselves to detect and respond to anything that, uh, any incidents related to insecure software? You really need to do vendor risk management. You need to think about what am I using the software for? How risky would vulnerabilities in this software be to my, to my business? And then if it's considered something that would be risky, you really need to push back on your vendor and saying, you know, did you build this securely? What kind of encryption are you using? What kind, do you have two-factor authentication? Will it integrate in with my single sign-on software? Can I operate it securely? So there's, there's those basic questions about sort of the features that it's being delivered securely. But then I think you need to really get beyond that if it's critical software, say, are your developers background checked? Do you do security testing in your software? What third-party libraries are you using that are open source? And how do you manage the risks in that? How do you deliver me patches when the next heart lead happens? So uh, it's really, a lot of this is still today questionnaires where you're asking the vendor to talk about their process for creating the software. But I'm starting to see, you know, need for evidence of 
either uh, software testing that you're performing yourself or third-party software testing. Manual pen tests are very popular for this. So what are some of the more recent innovations in application security that you would love to educate people on? And how can companies up-level their, their tools and processes in this way? So we're starting to see you know, security become code, just like infrastructure became code. And it's really truly become part of the, the development process. The cool thing about that is you can clone a, a, a development repo um, and get all of that security testing and configuration as part of your pipeline um, at just just by cloning cloning a repo. Um, and so I really think that that's the, that's the future that security testing just becomes you know a first class part of, of development tooling. The other thing that I've seen that's really cool is just shifting things that are traditionally operational, security and vulnerability management to the left. Well, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us today on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been a great conversation. Well, we had a great time unlocking insights into security from research to artificial intelligence. Keep an eye out for our next episode. And don't forget to tweet us at MSFT Security or email us at securityunlocked at microsoft.com with topics you'd like to hear on a future episode. Until then, stay safe. Stay secure. This week on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, join us as we dig deep into the XZ backdoor with its finder, Andreas Freund, and senior security researcher, Thomas Rochia, be sure to listen in and follow us at msthreatintelpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.